Hello and welcome to this episode of the Dynamic Design Land. Uh, my name is Glenn Carmichael. As always, I'm joined by my friend Rod. Welcome, Rod. Good morning, Glenn. It's been a while since we did the last one, um, and I think I've said that in probably the last three or four podcasts. But let, hey, this is the se- the 2023 season is now open, podcasting season. So let's call it that. Let's let's let, yeah, season three, 2023. It has been a while. Um, you and I have been working on some projects. We've been really busy, uh, very intense, but it's it started to, to to free up a little bit now. So we've managed to squeeze an episode in. And um, today, we we you know there's there's more and more noise and rumors coming about you know a potential headset from Apple. Uh, we know nothing. There you know there's no official detail. There's no official confirmation as you would expect. Uh, there was rumors it would get announced sort of around this time. Um, the, the those rumors have now shifted to it'll get announced at WWDC, uh, which is typically in June. I don't think we've got dates for. WWDC 2023 just yet, but we thought we'd do a bit of a, a an episode where we chat about mixed reality, where we see you know where, where Apple's done it relatively well, what we've experienced, the different forms of it, and some of the design considerations for interacting and and, and designing for uh, mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, and everything in between. Yep, sounds about right, but. I was thinking um, maybe we can start with kind of a bit of a baseline of what is mixed reality or virtual reality and what the differences are for people who might not have been across that, that information before. Um, at a very high level, and just to keep it super simple, the difference between mixed reality and, or uh, sorry, the difference between augmented reality. Ah, I could edit this out, but now I'm going to say that I'm not going to edit out because I'm going to reset my brain and go again. So mixed reality is the spectrum, right? Where you go from augmented reality all the way to virtual reality at the other end. And the difference is how immersive the experience is and how much of the outside world gets involved in that experience. So with augmented reality on one end, where the mixed reality spectrum starts, you have might have a camera or you might have used... Um, the apps on your phone or your iPads to, to overlay digital information on top of that. On the other end, you have virtual reality where you might have seen like PS headsets and, and virtual reality headsets that completely obfuscate the world around you. And you're like in this weird place. You might have seen TikToks of people trying to walk over a, a, a cable between two buildings and fall in the virtual space and literally fall and break the TV in the physical space. But that's because they had no awareness of what they were doing. That's yeah, that's a really good uh, explainer. And so, so to your point, like virtual reality, you can really only do virtual reality because it's got to obfuscate. I can't say that word. It's got to hide the real world um, by by covering your eyes, and you've got a headset. But augmented reality, where you're placing digital objects into or over the physical world, that's something that you know you don't necessarily need a headset for. Um, and there's a couple of different sort of approaches. So you can do it with headsets. Um, and you see that happen with the, the Meta Quest Pro that was announced uh, late last year, does that quite well, where it uses pass-through. So rather than showing you know the, those objects on, say, like a transparent display, what it does is you wear 
what could be a virtual reality headset that does completely cover your eyes and, and prevent you from seeing the outside world. And it uses pass-through cameras. So you've got cameras on the outside of the device that look out into the real world and then feed that through so that it's like you're seeing the real world. And that makes it easier to kind of put virtual objects over the top of the real world. That's not bad. Um, what I have found has been that like the, the you know, the quality of the, the image that's passed through isn't as good as, you know, what you would see through your, through, through your eyes if you're looking at the real world, but that's one way of doing it. Then you've got things like, uh, you know, the HoloLens was well known for. There's a couple of other um, vendors that have started doing this as well with a semi-transparent display um, so that, you know, you've got that information appearing. Typically, these displays are much less capable um, and, and so it's really, really hard for them to do that. It's also hard for them to anchor objects into the into the um, physical world because they have a very limited field of view. And then the last one, that, at least that I can think of, because we haven't really got detailed notes, this is just a chat, is the one that Apple has been doing for quite some time on device. So you've seen simple implementations of augmented reality in something, say, like Pokemon Go, where you know the Pokemon appears and you sort of see it. But Apple's done you know, a really good job at democratizing that augmented reality piece and making it such that you can create assets that are really, really realistic. Like if you took a screenshot of, of that view, it, it would look like it was something that was actually in the frame. And the, the way that they've done that is you know, making it easier to generate these 3D assets, but also their AR kit takes into account the lighting in, in the environment that you're in. It will change the lighting and even on reflective surfaces, try to predict what it should be kind of replicating in that reflective surface and things like that on digital objects that are added to the augmented space. So there's kind of three that I am aware of main kind of ways. Yeah, and, and there's also varying degrees of practicality. There's, for a very long time, it's, I think it still kind of lives in the world of gimmick, um, particularly at the app level. But it's 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 changed quite a bit in the last few years, and I think one of the one of the apps that I've heard referenced the most in terms of AR is the the IKEA app, where you can pick a piece of furniture that you might want to see how it looks in your room, and then it gets overlaid into your room, and you can change the color based on um, based on the your wall color, your wallpaper. There's some other new apps that let you see what a, what a wall in a room might look like if it changed color. For me, the most utilitarian one, I was thinking about this today, the one I've used the most that I've never labeled as AR, but it totally is, is the Measure app in the iPhone. Because I don't take a measuring tape with me all the I time. I use it but, all the time. But I do like DIY stuff around the house. It's, oh, how, how big is that? Boom, pull out my phone, snap, snap. And it gives me a pretty accurate measurement of, of, of distances um, completely with overlaying digital on top of the, of the feed from the camera. It's, it's clever. And that's integrating, like, obviously, augmented reality is a way of you interacting with the with the digital, but it's using LiDAR on top of that. And that, for a lot of the sort of headsets and things like that and implementations of augmented reality that are done really well, that LiDAR component with, say, computer vision camera sort of inter in, um, involvement as well, that's really important because for it to be real and to work, like it has to understand what it's what it's looking looking at in the real world to overlay those AR elements. So that could be measuring something, but it could also be, um, you know, when you place an object into the world, understanding 
what's in that world. So, you know, a, a good example of that is um, object or person occlusion. So if I put an object into the world, it needs to understand where, the, where there is a plane. So if I'm putting it on a table, it knows where the plane of the surface of that table is. Or if I have an object that I put behind something or partially behind something, it, it knows to cut that out because it understands the depth. And so realistic, well-executed augmented reality relies on more than just that, that software trickery. There's all this other sort of hardware stuff to support it. But I think you're right. Like it's historically been kind of gimmicky. I use the measure thing all the time. I love it. My brother, who's a builder, looks down on it. But, you know, for, for quick, just rough measurements, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but I think that, yeah, like we're, 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 we're super early days with this, you know, AR on a piece of glass has its limitations, but it also has its uses. Um, but talking about, you know, so that's that's a piece of glass. What have you used in terms of stuff that you would strap to your face um, for, for, for AR or virtual reality uses? Well, I haven't had the most experience in this space. I did have the chance to play with the HoloLens um, as part of a, some work that we were doing at Telstra Purple I got a chance to play around with it, and it was it was pretty cool. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be that that good. I, I wasn't expecting anything, and then when I used it, it, it was it really surpassed my expectations. Um, and Hololens is Microsoft's AR slash mixed reality device. Um, and then before that, quite a few years ago, actually, I think this must have been 2016, 2015, when Google Cardboard came out. For those of you who might not know what it is, Google had this. I think amazing idea of giving um, handing out blueprints and they even sold it if you wanted to but blueprints to cut out some literally cardboard and assemble it in a way that allowed you to slide your phone into it uh, and then because of the cutouts it had for your eyes and the distance from your eyes it worked and some magic that they did with it, an app uh, it wasn't just an app you could also run it on the browser it kind of created the VR effect at a super low cost and it was it was it was a gimmick, but it was still pretty impressive. And I remember that uh, I was running a digital design agency at the time, and we were getting to end of year, and we were thinking, how can we impress our customers? You know, create a bit more relationship. And so we we I think we printed like fifteen of these VR cardboards, and we sent them out, and we created a, a, we- a dedicated website with different um, stereoscopic imagery from different parts of the world that we thought were pretty amazing. And a note that said, use this to go wherever you want and something along the lines of, and together we can go even further next year. Have a happy holidays kind of thing. <laughs> so it was, cool. it was pretty fun putting it together, sending it out, and we got really good reception from customers. Again, at the time, VR was, yeah, was not where it is today. It was pretty good. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of people where, like, phone-based VR where you've, Put your phone into like a piece of cardboard or like some other kind of mount that that in the early days that worked quite well much you know the challenge was obviously even with say like a retina display when you've got that display you know a, a couple of centimeters from your face and you're looking at it through a lens that sort of amplifies it even with that high density of pixels you still get a little bit of what's called screen door effect like you can see between the pixels you get that kind of mesh uh, and so, you know, dedicated virtual reality headsets have, have worked to fix that. The other challenge that a lot of people had was the phone's gyroscope 
detecting like where you were looking and the angle and everything. It wasn't, it wasn't super, you know, as fast. And so as you moved around, there was like a slight lag between where your head had turned to and what you were looking at. And so for extended sessions, that would, that could get quite disorienting and, and, and make you feel a little bit ill. I was in that camp. Uh, and, and that was my first experience of virtual reality too. Um, back then, putting your phone into into some headset. That I, I'm pretty sure Google made, I think it was called Project Daydream. Yeah. Um, which was a, like a fabric, like a nicer padded one. But same concept, like your phone goes, your phone slots in and you use the phone's display and gyroscope. There was no tech uh, really in the in the Daydream headset. So cool, cool kind of way to get started. Um have you have you played so other than that in the Hololens? Has there been any other headsets that you've had the chance to sort of play around with? No, actually not. But I know you have. Yes, yes. Um, well, very recently, uh, picked up a new one. But so I, uh, yeah, I started on the cardboard. I've had a go with the, the Hololens and the Hololens Two. I believe Microsoft has sunsetted that program now. Um, the Hololens program, at least um, for consumer or, or business sort of applications. I believe there's also a military. Um, use case where they've managed to rig it to a helmet um, but I've had to play with that um, but I have also had an opportunity to wear uh, a Quest 2 which is is the Meta Meta Oculus uh, device that's their current sort of non-pro headset which is quite cool I haven't had a go of the pro which is which is you know obviously the the, the latest greatest I think it's three thousand dollars so I probably won't get to have a go of the pro um, tried a couple of, you know, computer connected ones that, you know, like HP, like Lenovo type ones. Um, and I have, uh, did, did play with the PlayStation VR one headset. Um, but have recently acquired the PlayStation VR two, uh, which connects to the PS five. Um, and sort of had an opportunity to set that up, play with it last night. And that is from, you know, putting your phone in a piece of cardboard, <laughs> Um, to this now, worlds apart. Um, and my design kind of brain is excited at some of the stuff that Sony has done with that in terms of the onboarding, in terms of interaction design, in terms of controllers and haptics and capacitive like detection of what you're doing. There's, there's so much that, that like, you know, they've done a great job. It's really refined. I imagine that, you know, Apple, um, is, is, is very much in the same sort of camp there um so i'm cognizant that i'm talking doing a lot of the talking but i'll talk with, i'll talk through some of the stuff around vr2 so it's it's a headset um one of the advantages that it has that is also a disadvantage versus some of the others that you get on the market is that it doesn't really do any of the compute in the headset so if you buy a, like an oculus quest uh or a meta quest sorry um, effectively it's got a Snapdragon processor in it and it's it's kind of got the brains of a mobile phone built into it but that means all the compute the weight of that that, that is associated with that the heat that is generated by that and the batteries required to run that all of that is on your face on your head um, and so for something that you would wear for an extended period of time it's not ideal like you want lightness you want coolness and and, and, and things and, and it's not that so the VR2 doesn't do the compute on the VR headset itself. It does it on the PlayStation 5. The downside is that you are connected and tethered by a cable. So there's a single USB-C cable that runs from the headset to the PlayStation 5. 
it's fine. Um, and and the, I think the benefits kind of outweigh the, 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 um, the downsides there. Um, the thing that I was impressed with and the thing that I think is exciting and I, I, I hope that we see in the headset that Apple may be working on, um, onboarding. So getting somebody up to speed on, on how to fit it, how to wear it, that was really, really fantastic. So it, it has passed through. It's just black and white. So it allows you to sort of see your space by showing you the feed through from the cameras on the headset. And you, you, when you're holding the controllers, it uses AR to show you the buttons on the controllers that you should be selecting anchored to those controllers. So you're looking at your hands and it's showing you, it's lighting up the buttons that you should be pressing while you're wearing the headset. So that is quite cool. Um, the other thing that it does, uh, that it has, um, so, you know, in terms of navigation in VR, it's always something that I feel, you know, we, we haven't landed on the right way to do it yet. So with the cardboard, you know, it was basically you would you could watch videos because there wasn't a control. So you'd hit sort of go or you'd load a 360 spherical photo, you'd put it in the cardboard, you'd look at it, and you're like, oh, wow, that's cool. Then you got to a place where sometimes you'd have controllers and that controller kind of had like a beam that extended out from it. So you could like point at stuff with the beam and click on things and things like that. And that seems to have been the way for a while. But I think what Sony has done could kind of be the next generation of that. It's, it's very intuitive. And that is using eye tracking. So when you set it up, um, it, it gets you to set up your pupillary distance. So it's, it's, it spends quite a bit of time making sure that your eyes are known are a known position within the headset. And then rather than having to stare at, or, you know, turn your head to look at menu items or anything like that, you just look at them and, and it will select them. Um, and once you realize that that's happening and sort of how, how well done and, and sensitive that is, I think that's quite cool. Um, being able to track your eyes also means that it can do something called foveated rendering. Uh, and so what that means is that, you know, normally if I'm looking at, at you and having a conversation, the things that are in my periphery are a little bit blurred. It's like a, an eyeball natural bokeh, I guess. Um, but that, um, you know, th th that effect um, in, in VR, normally you render the entire scene perfectly clear. And so that takes away from some of that realism of it. But what foveated rendering does is it renders with the highest clarity the stuff that you're looking at, and doesn't um, put as much detail into everything else. And you don't, you can't notice it because it's so quick. Like I tried to catch it, um, and and you don't notice it, but it makes it just feel much more realistic and immersive. Um, immersive. So the headset is fantastic. Uh, I think eye tracking or pupil tracking for for interaction and navigation is is a really big thing. The other thing that I was blown away by uh, is the controls. So very nice, very light. They're the standard sort of ones that have like a pistol handle grip with the, the halos around it. But there's capacitive elements on it everywhere. And so in game, it would know what my fingers were doing if they were open or closed, individual fingers and my thumbs. And so grabbing things rather than pulling a button to grab things felt more real because you, you, you had to grab and you, could, you can kind of twist and throw things and the physics of that are really, really good. The other thing, I, I was playing a game where there's a bow and arrow. The capacity, the, 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 um, the haptic, sorry, on the controllers is really good. So, you know, the, the, the strength that you have to use to pull triggers and the vibration engines, you know, it's kind of like Apple's haptic engines versus the old vibration motors. Like it's so much better 
and so much more immersive. And it's even got it on the face too. So if you get hit, you know, it, it, it kind of whacks you in the face gently as well. So it's really, really immersive. Wow. I think I need to jump on a plane and go try it out. <laughs> you're, you're, it sounds you're like so welcome. much fun. Yeah. So some cool considerations for like the hardware. Um, I'm really excited to sort of see, you know, so I think Sony missed, missed some opportunities in, in the, in some of the onboarding. Like it took me through that process of like setting up the eyes, explaining how eye tracking works. And then it drops you into the menu where you get to like select what game you're going to play. And it's just a floating screen. Like rather than an opportunity to have like a, a more immersive menu environment or even just curving it around me. They're just like, yeah, it's just a massive TV floating off in space in front of you. That's got the standard interface. So I think that, you know, reality OS or whatever they end up calling it. Um, I think that, you know, we're not just going to see a floating iOS or iPad OS around in front of you. I, I, I suspect that, or I, I hope if they're working on something, um, that you know, there's a bit more consideration to the context of the interface that you're designing for and that the user will be interacting with. My, my gut feel is that there's going to be a lot of the elements that we've been seeing come up in the latest versions of iOS, like the dynamic island and some other interactions that will inform th those reality or XROS user interfaces. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this world. It's it's been it's been brewing for some time now. This is not super new. Even Nintendo had a uh, had a go at VR like in the '80s, I think. Um, the Virtual Boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I also find super interesting, and maybe this is topic for another podcast because we're almost on time, but is is the difference the differences that come when you're trying to design for these environments where traditionally. Or, or for the last few years, the world of 2D has been like the standard where you might have different resolutions and different screen sizes. And we kind of create all these methods and workflows to explore solutions for that space. But the virtual space requires different techniques, even closer to the world of industrial design, where you might need to prototype physical objects um, to, to have a feel of how you're going to interact with them in the virtual space. Uh, the idea of body storming instead of brainstorming where you're trying to explore what 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 a what a what a 360 experience might be like and where things are coming at you from different distances and they're going away and they're disappearing behind you but they're still there not necessarily off screen and and that's for menus and, and interactions and everything it's it's i think it's super rich and it's yeah it's probably a breath of of, of fresh air and new ideas that, that it's I'd going to be exciting to. to set those new paradigms. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I don't know that we're at. You know, the, the keyboard and mouse. That was kind of like, yeah, no, that's that's how we do things. And then with with our devices now, like, I still sometimes go back and watch when they introduced the iPhone and and people were ooing and ahhing at like scrolling by just flicking, and pinch to zoom was like revolutionary because, you know, any app that you would design now you assume that is inherently understood as a way of, you know, touching and interacting with, with what you've built. We don't have that with VR yet or, or, or AR really. 
So what, what is that going to look like? All of the controllers are different. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what phone you buy, if it's a foldable, if it's not, they all have a flat surface that you interact with on a single plane. But all of these different headsets have a different take on a controller and haptics and capacitive inputs. And we, we, we aren't standardized yet. So that's exciting because we don't know what best practice looks like because you know, we probably haven't landed on it. So it'll be exciting as more and more companies invest more R&D in this and as companies like Apple that are so good at nailing those interaction patterns, you know, the, 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 you know, the click wheel, the touch interface with multi-touch, like all these sorts of things, um, to a lesser extent, the digital crown, but they, they did try to claim that it was. But, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see where does this land uh, in terms of like how do we interact in this new environment um, that is still so early days yeah absolutely and i think we're starting to get in the realm of um maybe even considering a deep a deeper dive podcast with some of the peeps from our mixed reality virtual team as as guests i think they would be excited to share what they've been discovering in the work they're doing with airspeeder and other projects yeah they would they would love to come on i'm sure so (laughs) yeah um, fantastic. So we are at time. I'm glad that we did this because I don't want us to, I didn't want us to just see the announcement of if something comes out later in the year and then give our thoughts and feelings on this. It will be fun and interesting to sort of see the difference between what our hopes are, what our perceptions are and assumptions are um, and what, you know, what gets announced maybe at WWDC. So I'm glad that we did an episode just dedicated to our uh, mixed reality or XR in general. So Rod, thanks for chatting. Sorry I did most of the talking. Oh good, you had the most experience in this space, so it made sense. Um, And I'm sure as more rumors start piling up, as we get closer to the date, we'll keep coming back to this topic and doing either more accurate or less accurate guesses, but we won't stop guessing anyway. That's the fun bit of it. Um, Thanks Glenn, I'm super excited that we kicked off this season three for 2023 and see you next time. Thank you.